Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell. I'll be one of your hosts here tonight at The Real Science Exchange, and we're here tonight with three experts in the dairy industry to discuss the weaning period and why it can be uh, so traumatic for our calves. Uh, First, let me introduce uh, Dr. Jim Drakeley from University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Dr. Drakeley, thank you for joining us here at the podcast tonight. And uh, do you have anything special in your, your glass tonight? Yeah, Scott, thanks for having me. Um, I'm having a nice, crisp glass of Sancerre white wine from France. Oh, nice. It looks good on a nice, warm summer evening. Yeah, Awesome. Well, tonight we're uh, revisiting your very popular topic uh, on weaning that we recently presented during the Real Science uh, Lecture Series. But before we dive in, I see that you've brought a couple guests with you here to the pub. Uh, can you please introduce those two gentlemen and kind of explain why you picked these two guys in particular? Yeah, well, I have two uh, experts on calf nutrition. So Dr. Jim Quigley with Cargill uh, and Dr. Mike Van Amberg from Cornell University. Uh, both longtime friends of mine and, and uh, good colleagues in the area of calf nutrition. So uh, we, we've all not always agreed on everything, but I think now we, we have a good rapport and, and I wanted them to be guests today to, to chat over this topic. Awesome. I, I've been looking forward to this one because uh, you've got such a distinguished guest that you've invited. Uh, Mike, uh, you've been here many times. Uh, welcome back. I think we may have to make you a host if you if you don't stop <laughs> showing up here. <laughs> yeah, but thanks again for joining us uh, again. Sure. Thanks for having uh, me. Yeah, Jim, appreciate having you here tonight. Uh, and thank you. Be looking forward to your comments. It's uh, great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. Uh, you're very welcome. And finally, I'm, I'm thrilled to welcome back our very own Dr. Peter Morrow to the table tonight. Pete will be serving as my trusty co-host in, in Clay's absence. So welcome, uh, Pete. And, and what's in your glass tonight, Pete? Thanks, Scott, for the warm welcome. Well, uh, as a Wisconsiner, I'm going to uh, represent the Midwest and the rest of Wisconsin by having a, an old-fashioned tonight, just like <laughs> if I was at a supper club in, uh, in Wisconsin. Yeah, a very popular drink when we have Wisconsiners on, on the podcast. Uh, for me, so first I'm going to explain, I was on vacation last week in Virginia Beach. I got two sons that were working down there this summer, so we decided to vacation there. And there's a hotel down there called the Cavalier Hotel. It's very historic. Uh, it was uh, erected in the, uh, the, the 20s, and um, they've got a distillery inside and and uh it, it's it's called the the cavalier hotel and rumor has it is that uh moonshine was flowing quite freely there during during prohibition and so they've got a distillery on site and so uh, i went on a tour of the distillery did a nice tasting and uh, came back with a bottle of their finest called discretion and also bought a uh, uh this is called a glen karen glass i don't know if you can see that but it, it's pretty cool. It's it's kind of wider in the middle. That's supposed to be so that it'll air the the bourbon, and then it's um, smaller at the top so that you can it'll collect the aroma, and you can smell it uh, quite easily. Not that I can tell the difference. It smells like wood to me, but uh, I I must like wood anyway. It's uh, very enjoyable, and uh, so appreciate having everybody here tonight. And with that, here's to a great, uh, fun, and informative podcast. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. Tonight's pubcast stories are brought to you by Reassure Precision Release Choline. 
Reassure is the most researched encapsulated choline on the market today, consistently delivering results to your transition cows of higher peak milk, reduced metabolic disorders, and even in utero benefits to her calf leading to growth and health improvements. Visit Balchem.com to learn more. So let's begin. As uh, previously mentioned, the webinar was well-received with a large audience during the webinar, and we've seen a significant uptake on our digital channels as well. So let's start with a very simple question, Dr. Drakeley. Um, why is this topic so popular in today's industry? Well, Scott, I think it's popular because it's still a problem. Um, I, I think that we've figured out a lot of things in the milk feeding period and, and the advantages of feeding more milk. But where it usually fails, if it does, is around the weaning transition. And I think there's, there's still too many problems with understanding how to appropriately wean calves that are coming off of, of large amounts of milk. And as I pointed out in the webinar, there's, there's often some um, slump in growth or even worse of, of the situations where there's large numbers of calves that are dying after weaning, which shouldn't happen, but it does. Yeah. Would you mind maybe touching on some of those, those key causes of the poor transition? Sure. I think there's a, there's a number of them. Um, Dr. Al Kurtz contacted me as he usually does after <laughs> I make a presentation and and uh, suggested that the, the biggest cause that he sees is the, the poor starter quality. So starters that are, um, that are too high in starch, that are poor physical characteristics, so a lot of fines, poor pellet quality, uh, not, a, not a good texturized starter if it's a, a texturized formula. Uh, that, so that's a problem. Um, I think there's other issues too, weaning too early. So we, we've, I think if we're feeding more milk, we need to change our mindset that we don't need to wean it at four or five weeks of age, that uh, starting to wean at six weeks of age and, and continuing to about eight weeks might be a more appropriate uh, time frame with a large amount of milk. Uh, weaning too abruptly, uh, uh, again, a couple of steps down, make the weaning more, um, more manageable for the calf. Um, uh, feeding too much hay is a, another issue, and I know Jim and I have talked about this when experiences in China where you see big hay-bellied calves after they're weaned and, and uh, just doing very poorly. The calves don't digest hay well at all at, at this age. And uh, water availability is always an issue to, to um, perhaps limit starter intake and stacking too many other stressors at the same time. So, you know, doing a lot of things with the calves like vaccinating and dehorning and moving and, and all the things that, that create stress on the calf. So those are the, the issues that I highlighted during the, the webinar. Uh, you know, I agree with everything Jim said that uh, all, all of those things are, uh, a lot of those things are, are factors that I see currently in the industry. Um, I don't know if I can add to anything except that I think when we look at, at heifers, they're still seen, heifers and calves are seen as a cost center, not a profit center in the dairy industry. And when margins get tight uh, and they're trying to figure out how to shave a few cents here and there, um, the, the quality of the diet presented to some of these animals um, is not what we'd like it to be. 
Um, and I think that's where we get ourselves in trouble. I'll just stop there for now. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things I found, uh, uh, Dr. Drickley, in, in your presentation was that you talked a little bit about Mother Nature's plan. And you kind of laid out all the things that she does. And, and then you kind of superimpose that against what we do. And it doesn't match up very well. And I'm just, one kind of curious as to why. And, and, and one of the specific questions I had is, you know, when, when the baby calf uh, starts eating dry feed, it's, it's, it's grass, right? It's high in sugars and high in very digestible fibers. And, and yet you talk about we're feeding calves, uh, hay that's not very digestible. And I'm kind of curious where the disconnect is. And then the follow-up question would be, should we be raising or growing hay that's specific for baby calves? I said a lot. Yeah, we can come back to that one. I, I think the I, Mike knows I'm a big fan of teleology, <laughs> so I always <laughs> like to uh, think, how, how did we get where we've gotten, and is there a reason for it? So I just made the point that Mother Nature has would have had the system with spring calving cows where the, the first feed that the, the baby would consume would be fresh, lush spring grass that, as you said, is very high in sugars, and sugars ferment to butyric acid to a larger degree than other substrates, and butyric acid is what drives rumen development. Um, in terms of the fiber, it is, it's not very highly lignified, it's, it's easily fermentable, so as the microbial population is, is getting established, um, it, it's still not not extremely digestible in terms of the NDF, but it, it's more digestible than the, the dry haze that we often feed at the same time. And then the other issues with, with mom, you know, the milk is, is 25 to 26% protein. Uh, the mother is feeding several times a day uh, and, and as much as the calf wants to drink. Um, and weaning, of course, was at a much older age and then we typically wean dairy calves. And if we think about the beef system, uh, that's, that's closer to, to probably how our, our dairy cows evolved as well. So I, I think that the issue of do we need a, a specific hay grown for, for young calves is an interesting one. And I'll throw that back to my colleagues for some comments maybe. I'm, I'm, I'll try to address that. But uh, before I do, just one comment about weaning. And weaning age, you know, uh, as Jim, you said that that Mother Nature doesn't plan for us to wean calves at four or five or six weeks of age. And, you know, in the industry, if I remember right, the last NOM study suggested that that dairy farmers are weaning on the average somewhere around nine weeks of age. Yeah. And, uh, you know, back in back a few years ago, we, we published a paper that showed suggested that digestibility of, of particularly NDF is mature until the calf reaches some level of, of NFC intake, which tends to drive rumen development. We've done a, a series of models uh, to, to look at when that actually occurs under different feeding programs, uh, high concentrate, high milk feeding, et cetera. And it's very rare that we get to that breakpoint of 15 kilos of cumulative NFC intake before nine weeks of age. So, so it's almost like the producers who, you know, who, who are feeding and looking at the calves every day have sort of have sorted, sorted that out kind of on their own, that uh, that seems to be somewhat of a sweet spot, particularly when we get to feeding, you know, to seven, eight, nine liters of, of milk a day. Um, 
prior to weaning. So I think uh, I think that 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 idea that you know we want to wean as early as we've traditionally done is is at least part of the uh, of, of why we're here today. <laughs> but but to the to the issue of forage and, and uh, you know highly high high lush forage if we would call it that um, the uh, the availability of simple sugars and and readily fermentable carbohydrates are a really big deal um, I, I'm not quite so sure what the rate of fermentation of those lush forages would be and whether we can maintain room and pH with uh, with, with that type of, of feed um, that's something that I think would be interesting for us to talk about too because you know for feeding any kind of NDF that needs to be fermented and we need to be able to maintain a reasonable room and pH in order to do that. And, you know, I think another one of the issues that we often face with young calves is they're feed, fed these high concentrate diets. Even with, with forage, we often see room and pH is quite low and, uh, you know, with a limited amount of uh, NDF digestibility. So, so uh, but, um, but I think it's an interesting idea uh, to, to, to offer these these types of, of um, very lush forages, but I'd still be a little concerned about how how are we controlling uh, pH and NDF digestion. Can you uh, uh, tell us a little bit more about that the what appears to be a breakpoint around the fifteen kilograms of NFC um, intake? To is that a hard fast number that tells us you know what 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 does that tell us if they have that amount they are rumen should be developed adequately or could, could just expound a little bit on that? Sure, sure. Well, we, we did some, some meta-analyses of a series of digestibility trials we did, we did over the, done over the last uh, seven or eight years. And we looked at the change in, in dry feed nutrient digestibility, protein, fat, NDF, starch, etc. And what we found was particularly for NDF digestion, that uh, early in life, when the room is not developed, it's kind of logical, NDF digestibility would be quite low. And what tends to drive that is, of course, rumen development, the availability of the rumen bacteria to ferment the NDF that's in the, that the, the calf consumes. Um, and as, as we did these analyses, we looked at, at intake, but also cumulative intake of dry matter, and, and we also looked at NFC and starch, digest, uh, starch intake. And the cumulative consumption of NFC seemed to be what was most important to the change in NDF digestibility. If you pull that back to, to, to real life, what that seems to mean is that NDF digestion is driven by, by the overall exposure of the calf to, to starch and sugar and rumen development, if that, you know, if that's what it is. So I, I don't know that we can actually hard and fast say that this is an, a complete indication that the calf is ready to be weaned. But certainly before that time, if, if we're, we're feeding less, if, if the calf has been exposed to less than 15 kilos of, of, of NFC intake, the digestibility of fiber of NDF will be lower than it would be after the calf gets to 15. So that's kind of the idea. Okay, so that is a more of a bacterial or ruminobacterial or microbe component. Is there a component of enzyme induction there too? Um, whether it be amylase or you know lipase induction by the calf 
when we looked at starch digestibility, there was much less of a relationship with with uh, with cumulative and the cumulative NFC intake. Um, and I, I think that that may be because it's less directly related to, you know, overall rumen development than say the development of the pancreas, for example, and and an amylase secretion. So, so I, I to answer your question directly, I'm I'm not 100% sure because we didn't weren't able to correlate those two things, mm-hmm. enzyme induction and and digest and digestibility. But remember, we did look at total tract digestibility, apparent total tract digestibility. So, you know, anything downstream from the rumen would also be contributing to that to that digestion. Um, but we're assuming that the majority, thinking about NDF now. Um, the majority of the digestion of NDF or the, the disappearance of NDF is going to happen in the rumen. Yeah, you know, the French data from years ago would show that the amylase and other carbohydrate digesting enzymes in the animal develop fairly quickly after birth so that as the animal is ramping up its intake of calf starter, it's probably able to digest a good portion of the starch uh, in the intestines. So that it's not surprising that the relationship is, is not as strong in, in Jim's studies. Yeah, uh, Dr. Quigley, uh, I'm going to assume uh, in your current role, you, you're on a lot of dairies. And I'm kind of curious, uh, what are some of the more common mistakes or problems that you see uh, dairymen making today? And, then, and what would the cause of that be? Oh, I've yeah, I've had the opportunity to travel around the world and see see dairy uh, dairy production and uh, the the interest in in increasing and in trying to optimize the milk feeding program uh, is definitely there. It's the it's it's the reduction of milk offered and that kind of glide path down to weaning that seems to be the the the, the stumbling block, if you will. Um, Lots of lots of calves are getting lots of milk, but they're not ready to be weaned when when the, the producer decides that's the time. And unfortunately, I see that a lot of places. A lot of places, um, calves will get eight, 10, 12, 12 liters of milk, and they're doing great. They look wonderful, um, <laughs> but then three or four weeks after weaning, uh, they they're all scraggly and and uh, and clearly struggling with acidosis and and other kinds of stress. And and then what would be the key factor leading to that? Why are producers not doing better with that? And what, what can they do? What should they do? Oh, my. <laughs> I wish I had an answer for, for you. Um, I think there's lots of things. I think, you know, the, the answer is we need to have, we need to, to really understand that that transition phase from high levels of milk down to weaning. And, you know, how do we step that down so the calf is still getting enough energy to, to, to grow during that transition phase, but, but at the same time, move the calf from, from, uh, uh, from, from milk feeding to, to starter and allow enough time for changing microbial populations, the development of the digestibility, like we were talking about. I think there's lots of, uh, so to, to answer your question, I, I think that understanding that transition program down to weaning is, is a really big deal. Yeah, I, I would add to that. So, to, to that point, I think, um, and Jim 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 Drakeley said this earlier, and, and Jim Quigley just uh, agreed that we need some changes there. I think the timing of weaning uh, is a big deal. 
in the we're not patient enough, yeah. right? To Jim's earlier point, if we're going to feed high volumes of milk, then we need to give them more time. And, and in all that we, you know, I haven't done as much calf research the last few years as I once was, but we, we just published a couple studies in the last couple of years where, you know, we took, we were up to, um, we were up to 12 liters a day. They were consuming 1.5 kilos of milk replacer powder <laughs> at the time we started weaning, right? So these girls were moving along uh, and we went three weeks, right? On the weaning phase, we had a starter that was developed for this procedure. Uh, to Jim's point is we need a way to do that. Um, you know, and, um, what we found is if we took more time, we actually could wean them off of a very high, uh, milk, uh, milk replacer intake level and not have any real post weaning lag, actually no post weaning lag and intakes were, were adequate, but there's a bunch of things that have to play into that. Right. Uh, Jim's earlier point about Jim Drakeley's, uh, Jim D and Jim Q, <laughs> the one with the beard and the one without, um, the, the um, you know, the, ha having enough, having sugar in the diet, right, uh, sponsoring some butyrate formation, I think is uh, really important. And I think that's, if there's something right now, I, I could, this could go on for a while, but if there, if there's any, anything that I think people have forgotten or younger scientists or industry professionals seem to have not reinforced somehow. And that is the idea that butyrate is what drives rumen um, development, not propionate. And I can't tell you in the last five years in talking to um, a variety of people, um, how many of them seem to think that propionate is what drives rumen production. So somehow they figure out that they got to get more starch into these diets. And I'm thinking, well, you're already at, at very high levels of starch. They're pretty dangerous, right? If you think about an adult cow. And um, so why are we trying to push more starch in them when, when you know, Jim's teleological argument would be um, you were supposed to get a bunch of sugar in there to get some butyrate production, and that's how that was supposed to develop, right? So I, th I see that as a real hang-up right now in the industry because starch is relatively inexpensive. Uh, we can offer it in just about any form you want to, <laughs> good, bad, or, or indifferent. And, um, and I think that's, that's one of our, our biggest issues with getting um, more effective weaning uh, taken care of. So you're saying yeah, they need more formulation towards simple sugars than opposed to the simple starches that we can probably get our hands on a little easier? That's the way we're approaching it. Now, our, the, the starters that we're building here now that in our research are roughly 15% sugar and about 20% starch. And sugar and glucose source or? Dextrose, lactose. I don't, to me, it doesn't, I wouldn't use sucrose in a calf, right? That would not be right. productive. But um, but I think, you know, and you'd love to use molasses, but man, that would be way too much molasses. You'd have a brick. So, but, you know, they've been feeding lactose to swine, right, in those weaning diets for years. Maybe that's a, a good use of our, you know, lactose from the dairy industry. I, you know, Peter, I would love to think so. I, I get told by, by all of our processors, how do we get rid of this lactose, right? We got all this lactose. We don't know what to do with it. 
So when I tried when I try to build these starters, I'll say, "Well, you, can you guys add lactose?" And they said, "Yeah, we can." I said, "What's it going to cost?" Well, it's the same as dextrose. Well, if we're really trying to get rid of that much lactose, why is it the same price as dextrose, right? <laughs> and it's the same in its supply chain, right? right? It's all about supply chain, right. and I I think that's we're shooting ourselves in the foot on that one because it seems to be we can we can send it to China less expensively and more profitably and sell it there than we can in our own system. Right. And that is a bit of a hangup. Yeah. But yeah. back to, back to Scott's question and the, you know, what, what are producers not doing? I think as Mike said, reinforced that, you know, a couple of steps down or more time. And I think that's just, that creates another management um, link on the farm that makes it just that much more complicated. And we know that, that farmers don't like complicated systems with, with good reason. But I think it's just, uh, Mike used the, the term lack of patience. And I think that's a, a great way to describe it. I'm kind of curious if maybe even technology or emerging technology, we might be able to employ some of that, whether it's, I don't know, feeding machinery, monitoring systems. I don't know what it is, but I'm kind of curious if anybody's working on something like that for transition dairy gas. Back to, to Jim's point, you know, uh, the, if you look at the lactation curve of the, of the cow, there is a normal natural reduction. And assuming we're not talking about a, a Holstein cow producing 110 or 120 pounds of milk a day, but, you know, maybe, maybe a, an Angus that's producing, you know, peaks at 14, 15 pounds a day, that rate of reduction is a gradual rate of reduction every day. And it's a, it, but it's, it's a small, it's, it's in small bits. And, you know, if you have an auto feeder program, you could set something up like that, follow a, follow a curve and, and have a gradual reduction. Instead of t- taking a, a calf from 12 liters of milk a day and doing a one-step reduction, you know, 12 to 6 liters, that's, that's a lot of energy and that's a lot of protein all of a sudden the calf doesn't have anymore. And, you know, at, if the calf is gaining a, a kilo a day, um, you reduce the, the, the energy and protein intake by, by almost 50%. What's going to happen? Do you, do you, you get down to the point of maintenance at that point, you know, with that kind of a reduction, um, you know, and so, so, you know, perhaps a part of this is to, to the point of, of impatience, you know, if we are reducing too much from these high levels of milk, um, the, the, the decrease of, of energy intake or protein intake are probably just manifesting themselves in a lot of stress. Pete, as uh, you were a practicing uh, DVM, so you've seen the other side. <laughs> yeah, now he's working for Balcom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you've been on the other side and you've seen the ramifications of uh, perhaps a suboptimal uh, transition program. Uh, what kinds of things have you seen, and then and and then how did you go go about uh, treating those issues? You know, w- without question, Scott, uh, um, the complaint or the call would be, uh, my wean calves are crashing. I, I you know, wean calves are terrible, uh, especially if you know inquire what what are the problems going on in the area. Well, my wean calves do terribly. Why is that? They break with respiratory disease. Can't buy enough antibiotics, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where uh, a lot of the uh, Oral antibiotics, you know, would come into the diet. So they, they would, oh, we, you know, when we wean, we have to do X, Y, Z. Or when, when we wean, we always have, a, you know, a break with coccidiosis. But honestly, it was always primary respiratory disease. And um, 
you can treat and, and you know, obviously treating band-aids keeps calves alive um, or some calves alive. But this is something I, I kind of discovered in practice that if we, if we transition calves better, um, we could make those headaches go away. And, and uh, it was pretty profound in my practice experience to try to, if we could, you know, improve that calf program, this, the transition program would improve dramatically. So it, it's, it's, it continues to be a problem though in, in, in the industry, but I think the, the dairies that have, or the calf ranches that have put the efforts into customizing their program, you know, doing the work to uh, Jim Drakeley's point, you know, it's a little more complicated, but uh, the folks that are able to do that, you know, extend the weaning period, feed once a day for a week, maybe two weeks, um, you know, step down, step down the amount of milk offered, I think uh, it makes a pretty dramatic difference. You know, some of the short-term problems are, are, are pretty obvious. You know, you got um, mortality, morbidity, uh, issues with the, the, the heifers and then having to treat them. But uh, can, can somebody talk maybe about some of the long-term impacts of an inadequate transition period? You know, what, what does that do to the, the, the longevity? What does it do to lifetime productivity? What's it do to, you know, we talk a lot about uh, epigenetics to calves on down the line. Uh, anybody want to take that one on? Well, I think that, you know, there, there were data from years ago that showed from an epidemiological standpoint that, that calves that have illness, particularly respiratory disease, uh, have a shorter longevity in the herd and produce less milk as, as adults. So, I mean, that's, that's been clearly established that disease is a negative, uh, has a negative impact on subsequent lifetime and, and productivity. And I think that can be extended to even a, a, a difficult transition or a, a slump where you have uh, a, a stress on the calves that's maybe doesn't break with clinical disease, but uh, still has the same long-term effects on the calf. Yeah, there, there's a there's a series of papers you have to read hard to find some of this because it's not always obvious. There's a paper that just came out of Europe where they clearly showed that, you know, from weaning on, if you didn't get the nutrition right, which then related to body weight at a particular stage of physiological development, you know, reproductive efficiency decreased, you know, as a heifer and then again as a lactating cow. So, so there are data out there uh, to, to that point that, you know, what we do during these phases does have a long-term impact. Um, it's just not always obvious. And the problem with some of that work, Scott, and, is that having enough numbers of animals where you've actually got records and data to be able to follow that is really hard sometimes. But where they do, where you can find adequate data, you will always find some long-term impact. It's just not always as obvious as you'd like it to be. Yeah. Those are hard studies to run. Yeah, without a doubt. But my, my, my guess and assumption is that, that if you could monetize what those uh, penalties are uh, in terms of milk production and longevity in the herd, that it would well offset any kind of investment we put into our calves, whether that's investment in time and facilities and, you know, just kind of going back to the whole education thing and, and doing things better because there really is value there. Anyway, I'll get off my uh, my pedestal. Um <laughs> Well, to, to that point, well, you know, we can stay on that for just a little bit. If you were to take a, a kind of a higher level view and look at 
some of the highest, and a few of us have done that. Unfortunately, we've never accumulated the information into something that's tangible like a paper. But if you take a look at the highest performing herds in the country, you will also find the, the best calf programs, mm -hmm. right? You will not find a poor calf program in 35 and 40,000 pound cows, right? <laughs> Those two things are generally mutually exclusive. So, so if you look at some of these high-performance herds around the country, those are the herds that also have pretty good calf programs one way or another. Uh, next question, I'm going to kind of throw it out to the group, and I am going to start with Dr. Quigley uh, on this one is, so if you were designing, if we had a magic wand, we were designing the perfect calf program, oh what does that look like? What are those key elements? I know this will take a book, but you've only got about, uh, <laughs> you got about 90 seconds. <laughs> okay. Well, well, clearly the uh, the, the idea that uh, that as as we improve the nutrition of the calf pre and potentially post weaning, that has positive impacts on on uh, on, on future performance and, and longevity. Um, suggests that you know um, targeting growth rates to eight eight hundred uh, grams of, of body weight gain a day or more um, prior to weaning. I, I think having flexibility around um, around weaning age and you know if we're offering a calf uh, eight or nine liters of milk a day or milk milk replacer equivalent then we need to be we need to be uh, targeting the reduction and without any data um, we've we've been been kind of thinking about step stepwise reductions no more than about 25 percent of what the calf is receiving so at four at eight liters a day it's a two-liter step, a two-liter step, a two-liter step down, so that that um, that we give the calf enough time to increase dry feed intake for all of the metabolic changes that are going to take place inside the calf, um, changing microbial populations, increasing digestibility, etc. All of those things can take place. Now, I'm I'm talking about a perfect program, and maybe this would be difficult to implement on the on the farm because there would be multiple steps uh, of a reduction involved. Um, I, I think the, the availability of fermentable carbohydrates prior to weaning to promote rumen development is really important. And the ratio of, of, of simple sugars to, to starch and, and other NFC, I think, is something that we need to sort out. And I appreciate Mike and Jim's comments about that, that, uh, you know, getting back to the basic biology of what's driving rumen development. Well, it's, it's those VFA and particularly butyrate that are important. So let's make them, you know, and uh, the, the idea of digestible NDF early in the life of a calf to me is something that's difficult. Um, I, I have a hard time with that. So, you know, lots of <clears throat> lots of, of high NDF byproducts in a calf starter are for, for me. I, I think that idea is, is, is can be somewhat of a challenge just because calves are going to struggle to to digest to get all of the energy, particularly out of those those those, uh, those byproducts. So, you know, um, in all the the modeling work we've been doing, uh, nine ten weeks of age at weaning time, moving from from eight to nine liters liters of milk or milk equivalent a day, down to weaning at nine or ten weeks of age, um, we see minimal uh, minimal indications of of stress as as we calculate it. So. To, to me, that, that seems to be a, 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 a kind of a program that, that could work on a lot of dairies, if they have the patience, as, we, as we've been talking about here, to, to, to implement the program. 
do you think of, along those lines, do you think it'd be valuable to, um, along with trying to ferment and create some butyrate to actually feed one of the butyrate products, whether it be in milk replacer or where else, wherever avails, be, it'd be available. I've not seen, and maybe maybe uh, Mike and Jim can comment as well, but I've not seen where adding dietary butyrate, you're you're going to be able to provide enough or in the right in the right proportions to to make a much of a difference to to the actual development of uh, the rumen the rumen wall or absorptive capacity. You guys uh, have you seen anything to to suggest one way or the other? Well, I, I think there's there's not a lot of data that have actually looked at rumen development. Uh, there's probably more information that it seems to have a positive effect in the the lower gut, mm-hmm. um, yep. which yep. you know that can't discount that either. But as but in terms of rumen development, I I don't as you said I don't think we can probably feed enough to to really stimulate that. What do you think, Mike? No, no, I, I agree with that. I, I, there's not enough. I don't think we can feed enough butyrate to really drive rumen development. Yeah. But but to Jim's point, the lower gut seems to respond quite well to that butyrate, which is a positive, right? Because you're going to enhance, um, you know, mucosal development, things like that. So you increase the barrier, uh, create a better environment for the rest of the commensal bacteria. So that's, that's all good. Jim or Mike, you want to take a crack at the... Uh creating that perfect uh, transition calf program? I'll, I'll add to what, what Dr. Quigley um, started out with. So I agree with everything that, that Jim Quigley said. What I'd add to it, and again, this is from our modeling, our own modeling work relative to a CNCPS type um, thought process. <clears throat> I think one of the other things that's going on with these calf starters, and Jim Drakeley and I have had this conversation over and over again, but I think we finally sorted it out. You know, if, if you think about mom's milk on a dry matter basis, those are Holsteins, even though milk protein tends to be increasing, we're, we're in that 25 to maybe 27 protein range. Um, so, you know, which also, if you, if you go to the new NRC requirements, you know, we're kind of in that 25 to 26% crude protein range when you think about uh, these higher growth rates. So as we're going to go through this transition phase, um, to Jim's point, we're going to take time to do that. And, you know, and he, and he made the point about going from 12 liters to 6 liters or 8 liters to 4 liters. You're basically putting them into a maintenance type function Um you know, so we've got two things going on. You've got the energy to allow for normal function, but then you've also got the protein. And that rumen's not developed yet. We're not going to have a lot of microbial yield. And we have to make a gastrointestinal tract that's very protein intensive, doesn't have a lot of adipose tissue, it has a lot of mucosal tissue and some muscle. So when you think about having to build that tissue and you think about how this what the next priority for nutrient use is going to be in that calf, it's going to be what we all want is we want them to build that gastrointestinal tract. Well, that's going to take a bunch of energy, right? Butyrate would be the priority in some propionate. Um, We're going to need a bunch of amino acids, right? So I think one of the other, I I will argue, um, I will argue that part of our post-weaning lag is that we don't supply enough amino acids in our starters to meet those requirements for tissue development. 
So, so it's not only getting the carbohydrate side of that um, worked out in that in that uh, in your accounting system, but it's also meeting the protein. You know, once you create that energy demand, you've got to supply the amino acids to mm-hmm. allow that tissue to grow. So, I will argue that post weaning lag is not just a carbohydrate uh, problem, but it's also uh, an essential amino acid deficiency. Yeah. Um, and we have not sorted that one out very well. Yeah. And our own, our data, our internal data would say that those calves at probably about 80 to 90 kilos would require about 13 grams of methionine a day. Hmm. Right. And then you could go from there all the way through. We don't, we're not talking about that yeah. <laughs> as an industry, but that, that would be, that would be, you know, when we get our calf model done, our version of the calf model for the CNCPS, that's about where that number is going to come out, yeah. I think. We're still talking about crude protein on calf starters and grower <laughs> diets, right? I mean, exactly. Acids. And as far as that goes, uh, a lot of folks are, well, I feed a 16. Why is that? Because it's cheaper, right? Right. It's cheap. That's, exactly. That's why I feed a 16. Yeah. You know, there's, there's no dietary goal there, or, or at least. Nope. Well, Producer perspective. Well, we're investing. A, we invest a lot of money feeding feeding these high quality milk milk replacers, <laughs> but then transition them onto a yeah sixteen percent crude protein cow starter that uh, you know <laughs> maybe maybe doesn't have the, the quantity of, of yeah everything the calf needs amino acid wise to, to support mm-hmm. it. So you know penny wise and pound foolish sometimes. Well, I, that's exactly Jim where I think we're stuck. Yeah. One of the interesting things that came out of Jennifer Stamey's work that we published a couple of years ago was there we go was um, just kind of re- I I should have known better but it hit hit me that the digestive tract growth is is allometric during that weaning transition you know we always talk about the the allometric yep. phase of mammary development and that's that's something that's pretty widely taught but the digestive tract increases at a faster rate than the rest of the body during this winning transition. So to Mike's point, you know, a lot of those nutrients, which may be in a shorter supply to begin with, are going to be directed toward the the gut development during that time. And the other thing that that is important to remember is the influence of gut fill on the average daily gain Um, in, in those studies that we did between five weeks and 10 weeks of age gut fill accumulation was almost a, a, a half pound per day, quarter of a kilo a day, just an accumulation rate of, of digesta within the digestive system as the tract enlarges. And so if we're measuring, you know, if, if the calf slumps to 600 grams per day of, of body weight gain, um, 250 grams of that are going to be gut development. So we're really slumping on the the development of the rest of the body. So I think that, um, you know, there's a huge amount of of stuff we need to know yet about that that transition time. Yes, that kind of leads to uh, kind of the next area I kind of wanted to cover is what does the future look like? What's it look like in terms of research? What are some of the, the, the largest unanswered questions yet? Uh, whether that's nutrition, facilities, uh, anything. I know that's pretty wide open, but uh, got some smart guys here. I'd like to, to narrow down that, that time, timing, the sequence of development of the, of the GI tract 
you know, just how how quickly are those changes occurring and, and on what period of time are we really talking about this enhanced development? I mean, we, we've got some clues like, like Jim's work with cumulative intake and so on, but just to, to know better the time course of some of these changes, I think would help in our, our modeling efforts. I would add to that, the, the understanding the, the, the dynamic dynamic changes that are taking place Rumen-wise, you know, as you think about the models that we currently have and our ability to predict nutrient flow, you know, a big black box there really still is is the amino acid flow, microbial-wise and 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 from from the the RUP fraction. We don't have a lot of data that suggests uh, that, that that allow us to predict reasonably things like the KD, the rate of passage, or or, or the rate of digestion. Of, of various feed fractions and so on. And the, the, the young rumen is, you know, it's, 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 it's changing not only in terms of metabolic activity, inability to absorb BFAs, et cetera, but also in size. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, our, our understanding of, of rates of passage, for example, are gonna be somewhat dependent on, on, uh, on all those, those dynamic changes. It's, it, it's it's a it's a little more complicated, and I don't I don't think we have and maybe maybe uh, others have other opinion, but you know at least we don't have really good handle on how do we predict the appropriate amino acid flow to the to the small intestine, uh, especially during this this transition yeah. period that we're talking about. Some of the best work we have on that was by Dr. Quigley when he was a graduate student, and that's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> It's been a while for sure. <laughs> well, the, just real quick, the hard part is who's yeah. going to fund that kind of work today, yeah. mm -hmm. right? I, I'm, I, I would like to do, I've got a grad student interested in some of this calf work. Man, nobody, you know, if it doesn't say methane somewhere, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really hard, it's a really hard uh, lift right now to find enough money to actually do a good yeah. mechanistic study. Right, because it's not cheap or inexpensive. I'll use inexpensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the the marker work you need to do to be able to to follow the various component flows and so on. Or yeah, that's that's heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, gentlemen, as we begin to wind down here, is there any uh, big rocks that we've left uh, unlifted, Jim? We cover it pretty well. I think we've touched on most of the areas. Um, both from a science aspect right. and a, a practical basis. Okay, very well. Then I'd like to ask just a few questions that were asked during the, the webinar. Uh, and one of them has to do with uh, 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 calf socialization, which I don't think we, we touched on yet today. But um, the question is, is feeding calves in pairs or the buddy system still recommended? Uh, this was a bit of a hot topic for a while, but I haven't heard much about it lately. Yeah, I think there's, a, um, I'm not sure how widely it's being adopted, but from a, just a data standpoint, it, it looked like there, the, um, whether it's competition or facilitation of having uh, group housing, encouraging to, uh, better dry feed intake at a young age. So I think there would be an advantage uh, from that standpoint. 
All right, next question is, uh, do you have any tips to stimulate early calf starter intake in mm -hmm. pre-weaned calves? We kind of yeah. touched around that a little bit. I'll let you guys address that one. I, I gave my, my best effort in the webinar, but that's the million dollar question. Well, an easy answer is water. Um, that, that's a, a key driver and something people forget yeah. a lot. And still a common problem, as long as we've known that calves need free access to, uh, you know, of high quality water, uh, it's it, it's still a problem having that happen yeah. in the field. Yeah. I, I think there's some simple things we can do. We, we uh, probably need to change the way we present starter to calves, not in some bucket that's, you know, as big as their milk bucket all at the bottom. They can't see it. They can't really see it and understand that that's supposed to be feed. We know it's feed, but they don't know it's feed. And then there's nobody to teach them back to the buddy system. There's nobody to teach them that that's actually food. One of the things that we uh, sorted out in our auto feeding calf barn is we recognized that if we had some of the older calves in there that, that were consuming starter, that they encouraged the younger guys to to go eat, right? So that idea of, of learned behavior, because mom, mom would teach, the dam would teach the calf how to eat, right? Some of that pasture, or they'd just learn by watching. Um, there's probably, again, I think some of the intake inhibition is partially due to we just feed too much starch or it's presented in the wrong form, too much dust, particle size is bad, right? We don't want to spend money for, for something that you know, is a little more palatable. So when they breathe while they're trying to eat, they get the stuff up their nose and they say, hey, that, that burns and I don't want to do that. Um, so there's a bunch of these little nuanced things that I think play into uh, this. Again, it's management, right? And it's not, you got to work at it. But I think it's, it's all those little things that add up to this problem. Yeah, very well. Thank you for that, Mike. Well, my, my Glenn Karen is empty. And that's a signal to me that, uh, that our time has come to an end. So uh, with that, I'll leave you guys with just one question. If listeners today, be it nutritionist or a dairy farmer, uh, go away with one new idea or thought to go back to the farm with, what would that be? And uh, Dr. Quigley, uh, would you mind if I started with you on that question? Tonight's last call question is brought to you by Nitrisure, Precision Release Nitrogen. NitroSure delivers a complete TMR for the rumen microbiome, helping you feed the microbes that feed your cows. To learn more about maximizing microbial protein output while reducing your carbon footprint, visit balcom.com slash NitroSure. Absolutely. Be patient. Yeah. We talked about it already, and I think the idea of being patient and, and understanding the, the, the reductions to, to minimize stress during that time would be a, would be a, a big win for, for the producer yeah, and for great the Great point. Glad you put an explanation point on that. Uh, Dr. Van Amberg, what are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I'd second what Jim just said. Learn to be patient um, and have a system. And think about starter as a nutrient delivery mechanism, not just something that you got to put in front of them to eat. Um, I think that that is a bit of a, you know, if we can buy the least expensive thing and put it in front of them, they should be fine because that's, that's, they got something to eat, right? I think we have to think more about nutrients. It's the same. My, my take on that is it is somebody who works on a nutrition model at one end of the farm, they want to know how many grams of methionine and lysine got to the mammary gland that day. And at this end of the farm, we can't get past a crude protein metric, right? And it's the same animal, just different stages of development. <laughs> 
the irony of that to me is crazy, right? <laughs> but anyhow. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd echo the, the same theme as my two colleagues. And, and I would go to, to Pete's point that he made today that, that um, you know, you, clinicians and, and farmers see the result on the farm. They, they see calves that are struggling around weaning. And to Pete's point, you can make it go away if you just are a little more patient and, and do a better job of transitioning. So I, I think the the incentive to do it ought to be there both in the short term and in the longer run, going back to, to Mike's comments about looking at it as a cost center rather than a, a profit center. So I, I think we've we've done a good job yeah. of, of emphasizing that point. We haven't done a good job, sorry, of, of emphasizing that well, point. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well said. So this has been an interesting one, been a fun one. I knew it would be, uh, Dr. Drakeley, when you put together this panel. Uh, you guys have been great. So I want to thank uh, all three of you for your, your, your time, your knowledge, your contribution to the industry and to the conversation tonight and to our loyal listeners. Thank you for coming along once again, uh, as you do on each episode, and sticking with us as we explore new topics. We hope you learned something. Uh, we hope you had fun. And we hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange, where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at valchem.com with any suggestions, and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars.